One of the joys of cable TV is finding a channel that seems tailor-made for your particular viewing tastes. Such it is with Forces TV over here in the UK, which seems to have raided my mind to ask what I like to watch and at what time I like to watch it, and has scheduled Knight Rider, Street Hawk, Erwolf and UFO at 10 o'clock in the evenings on weeknights. These are all perfect shows for that time, not too demanding, but not too fluffy, easy to fall asleep to and all entertaining at the very least. Of course, they preload their weeks with the best, airing reruns of the A-Team Monday nights at 10. The A-Team was created in 1983 by Stephen J. Cannell and Frank Lupo. Cannell had already shown himself to be a canny TV producer, setting up his own production house after working on the Rockford Files. This meant that Cannell and his production partners owned a stake in their own work, something that proved more lucrative when the shows went off the air and entered the lucrative overseas sales and syndication market. Cadell had already had success with Rockford and The Greatest American Hero, and Lupo, who had worked on Hero with Cannell, was brought in as a production assistant in Cannell's studio. Cannell was loyal to his workers, making sure their scripts weren't heavily rewritten, and, even if they were, that the writers still kept their name on the credits. This is why a lot of names on Cannell's shows reoccur. Lupo was one such writer. He'd already worked in the Universal TV production factory, working on Battlestar Galactica, BJ and the Burr and Magnum P.I. before landing the gig at Greatest American Hero. Together, he and Cannell cooked up this idea of a band of former Vietnam vets who now worked as soldiers of fortune, hiring themselves out to help people who were otherwise in dire straits. Production on the A-Team was rushed as the series was scooped up as a mid-season replacement to start airing in January of 1983. Cannell is quoted in an interview as saying that this is why the pilot movie essentially rips off The Magnificent Seven in terms of its plot, but in every other respect, the A-Team pilot movie is textbook. Characters are introduced, the series setup explained, the premise of the series to follow laid out, and a competent story told, all in the allotted 95-minute running time. The extra space allows for expansion on many features of A-Team lore only referred to in other episodes, such as the runaround the clients get to even get a meeting with the team, and the various occupations of the team members. The A-Team is a live-action cartoon, something that the actors, producers and viewers all realised, but something that the critics spectacularly failed to understand. The show is ridiculous, and deliberately so. Cannell is well aware that a real-life group like the A-Team would likely be immoral scumbags, and the violence depicted in the show is deliberately over-the-top and corny, often played with a glint in the eye and a tongue pushed firmly into cheek. As with most of Cannell's shows, it was the characters that stood out and made the show memorable. George Peppard was cast as Colonel John Hannibal Smith, the team leader and generally insane madman. Hannibal is a risk-taker, a maverick, and always... On the jazz, a term which refers to Hannibal's freewheeling nature. According to Cannell, Hannibal needed to have the devil in his smile, and has said that that's what led to casting Peppard. The A-Team was a late career renaissance for Peppard, who never really became the big Hollywood movie star he was projected to be in the 60s. By all accounts, Peppard was notoriously difficult to work with, and his problems with alcohol added to his reputation during the 1970s. 
Papard was clean and sober by the time he was cast as Hannibal, his sacking from the role of Blake Carrington in Dynasty being the wake-up call that the actor needed to clean up his act. Hannibal was my favourite character on the show, even if he was the least developed. There was something dangerous about Papard that translated well to the screen. You never knew if Hannibal was insane or not, but he always had his men's backs. Mr T was Sergeant Bosco B.A. Baracus, the B.A. standing for Bad Attitude. Hot off his recent role as Clubber Lang in Rocky III, B.A. was tough but tender. He loved teaching impoverished kids real skills like mechanical engineering in the hopes of giving them a way out of the ghettos he grew up in, but he hated to fly, which begged the question of how we got to Vietnam in the first place. Easily the most limited actor on the show, B.A. nevertheless became a role model to young children, a position that, to his credit, Mr. T took very seriously. His dialogue was limited to snarling and he was generally there to just punch people and build shit, but his character was fleshed out over the course of the series to reveal he was raised by a single parent and his joining the army was the only way he could stay out of trouble. T was apparently a massively successful businessman, turning his image into a successful brand on and off the show. It was difficult, therefore, to see where T ended and B.A. began. Dwight Schultz was cast as Captain H.M. Howling Mad Murdoch, the only character never to be given a real name. Murdoch was not an official part of the team, having been placed in a veteran's hospital after the Vietnam War and is classed as insane. As such, the viewer is never completely sure whether Murdoch is mad or if he's just pretending so that he can help the team out whenever he needs to. Needless to say, numerous episodes open with Face having to scam Murdoch out of the hospital so he can fly them to the latest job. Schultz was an incredible versatile and charismatic actor, and he takes Murdoch, a role that could have been one note, and manages to wring every last ounce of comedic potential out of it. There are many episodes in the run where Murdoch was the best thing about it. Rounding out the main foursome is Templeton Peck, a.k.a. Face, played by Tim Dunnigan in the pilot movie, but replaced by Dirk Benedict for the series. Face is an orphan, capable of scamming anything from anywhere, and always working the ladies. Face is the one member of the team who really can't be bothered with all this running and shooting. Face looks out for Face, and he's the only one that the viewer can see hanging it all up. It's hard to say what would have happened had the series continued with Dunnigan in the role, but Benedict essentially takes the same character he played in Battlestar Galactica, gives him a little more pathos, and spins him off into a more successful show. Benedict was an excellent light comedic actor, and quickly became a wonderful double act with Schultz, as the two of them were often purred up to run faces scams. Both Schultz and Benedict should have become bigger stars after the A-Team, but sadly, it was not to be. Melinda Coolio was a regular in the first season and a half as Amy Amanda Allen, Triple A, a reporter who hires the team in the pilot movie. Coolio wanted a more active role in the show. She wanted the team to take her under its wing and train her in firearms and tactics. But this didn't sit well with Peppard, who felt the show was a guy's show and didn't need no pesky women gumming up the works. Now, The A-Team is a massively fun and enjoyable show. It is not, however, what you would label as progressive, so Kalia was fighting a losing battle from the start. It may very well have been interesting to have Amy take up the role she suggested, but women in the A-Team were eye candy, clients, faces conquests, or a mixture of all three, and the producers didn't seem to want to change that. Kulia found herself out of a job after a year. The pilot movie is interesting in that it hits the ground running. Once you get over the fact that Dirk Benedict is nowhere to be seen, all the other elements are in play. 
The team are wanted by the government for a crime they committed in Vietnam. See, contrary to the famous opening of the series proper, which I'll play for you soon, the 18 did actually commit the crime they are wanted for. They did rob a bank in Hanoi, and they did steal over a million dollars worth of yen. However, they claim it was under orders from their commander, Colonel Morrison, who was unfortunately killed in an airstrike as the US were leaving. With no way to prove their innocence, Smith, Barakas and Peck escape and head underground, where an almost mythical Robin Hood-type legend starts to build around them. For reasons never adequately explained, Murdoch, despite being the team's pilot for the mission, isn't accused of the crime, nor is he a wanted man. They are hunted in the first season by Colonel Lynch, played by William Looking, who spends most of his time being outwitted by Hannibal. Over the duration of the series, Lynch would be replaced by Colonel Decker, played by Lance Legault. Then Lynch would return, then Decker would come back, and then Decker would be replaced by Colonel Bull Fulbright, played by Jack Gink, before Decker made one final appearance in the last season. Characterisation is in place from the get-go, with everybody instantly recognisable, and the series would only undergo minor retooling as it went into its abbreviated first season. Speaking of the opening, here's one of the finest and most memorable TV credit sequences in history. In 1972, a crack commando unit was sent to prison by a military court for a crime they didn't commit. These men promptly escaped from a maximum security stockade to the Los Angeles underground. Today, still wanted by the government, they survive as soldiers of fortune. If you have a problem, if no one else can help, and if you can find them, maybe you can hire the A-Team. As with all TV shows, the first season is a hodgepodge as the show tries to develop an identity. The first few episodes are a tad dark and the series would go as it hit its stride, with children of Jamestown seeing the team take on mad old John Saxon as a religious cult leader, and a small and deadly war which has the team take on a corrupt SWAT team featuring Dean Stockwell. To emphasise the different approach taken by the earliest episodes, the leader of the SWAT team is killed in the climactic battle with Hannibal. The series hits its stride from then on, though, with some thoroughly entertaining episodes. Pros and Cons sees the team deliberately get themselves arrested to help out an old friend of B.A., who finds himself jailed on a trumped-up charge and forced to take part in illegal burnacle brawls. Actor Clifton James adds yet another redneck southern sheriff to his resume in a hysterically funny and frequently ridiculous episode. Holiday in the Hills is another standout, as the team crash land in South Carolina and are forced to take on a bunch of redneck hillbillies attempting to burn a man at the stake. Some of the best dialogue from the show happens in this episode. Not 
Knock it off, you guys! Uh... Are you having a problem, Murdoch? Well, it's hard to tell with these. With these? What do you mean with these? Where'd you get this plain face? Uh, well, you, uh, face didn't scam it, I did. What? Well, I, I had to con the passport people, I... Okay, Murdoch, where did you get this bird? I clipped it off the rental plane repair line. It would be ridiculous for me to assume that it had been fixed. Of course it wasn't fixed. They start to miss them once they've been fixed. You gotta get them before they're fixed. Of course. Now, Murdoch, uh, what's gonna happen? Looks like we're gonna crash. Oh, come on, really, what's gonna happen? It looks like we're gonna crash and die. I'll get the parachute. Four thousand feet and dropping. Well, this thing's got the glide characteristics of a free-falling safe. Where are we, my doc? I don't know. I think somewhere in South Carolina. Uh, I think. I've been dead reckoning it. This uh, funny little thing that points and spins ain't working. one parachute i'll jump and go for help too low too late to jump you got this plane off a repair line okay find a comfy little spot and hold on one more time may be the best episode of season one though after a rather spectacular chase through la the team are finally caught by lynch who is despondent when the team are taken from him and tasked with locating a high-ranking u.s general who's gone missing in borneo Fast-paced, action-packed and genuinely hilarious in places, this is the A-Team at its best. The rest of Season 1 is enjoyable, if forgettable. The out-of-towners is the A-Team Helper Taxi Firm episode, a plot they will return to and do better in Season 2's The Taxi Cab Wars. The Beast from the Belly of the Boeing is the A-Team Disaster Movie episode, where Hannibal is forced to land a plane when Murdoch is blinded by a backfiring weapon. And The Rabbit Who Ate Las Vegas is the Vegas episode. Every show does one. Till Death Do Us Part is notable for Dwight Schultz in a wedding dress and the season closes out with the semi-serious A Nice Place to Visit, where the team attend the funeral of an old army buddy, only to notice that the entire town is afraid of giving him the send-off he deserves. When they find out that their buddy was actually killed by the three brothers who run the town through intimidation, the team go all out to avenge him. Basically a reworking of First Blood, the team go out of their way to not make any trouble for the dead man's widow, until they're pushed just that little bit too far. One of the few times the town under siege plot felt real, this is also one of the rare times the team would have been justified in killing their opponents. A nice place to visit is an oddity in A-Team lore. Few wisecracks or funny moments, it's an out-and-out drama about how society treats its soldiers, and as such a rare and welcome episode. Season 2 began with the show being a top 10 rating smash, despite being reviled by the critics. The show hit its stride in terms of stories, by which I mean they recycled the same three plots around, but beefed up the action and humour. The first season at least had a mix of the types of stories being told, but by season 2, knowing they had a hit on their hands, the network just wanted more of the same, and the show quickly settled into a repetitive formula. 
The team would be hired by either a pretty girl being run off their land, slash being conned out of their business by a scummy businessman, a pretty girl with a father or uncle being run off their land, slash being conned out of their business by a scummy businessman, or they would blunder into a situation where a pretty woman and her father or uncle were being run off their land, slash conned out of their business by a scummy businessman. On rare occasions, the team would help or hire themselves, such as the only church in town, where Face hires the team to find the only woman he ever really loved, who is now a nun and played by Marky Post. This is actually one of the better episodes, delving as it does into Face's background and giving Benedict a chance to show some depth to his character. For the most part, though, Season is notable for writing Amy out and sending her on an overseas assignment, never to be seen again. She was replaced by another reporter, Tanya Baker, played by Marla Heasley, although Tanya was never added to the opening credits proper. Heasley told the tale on the Channel 5 documentary Bring Back the A-Team that on her first day, Papa told her that she wouldn't be around long as they didn't think they needed a woman in the cast. She says that he was never mean to her or even difficult around her, but he would be proven right in season 3. Season 2 still had some fun episodes, despite the highly formulaic nature of the scripts. When You're Coming Back, Range Rider is a two-hour movie which introduces Colonel Decker and has the A-team go full-on western when they are hired to help a group of Native Americans suffering from castle rustling. Labour Pains is fun just for the ridiculous stunt work. In this episode, B.A. jumps the van over a collapsed bridge and the ending where the team take out the bad guys by firing cabbages at them. Steel has the single best in-joke of any series ever. When picking up a client on the Universal Backlot Studios tour, Face does a double take when he walks past a silo. The White Ballot is a funny episode where Face and Amy pose as newlyweds and homecoming heroes to prevent a corrupt sheriff, Clifton James, again from winning a local election. Deadly Maneuvers is the closest the team ever came to being beaten when Ed Lauter guest stars as the leader of his own gang of soldiers of fortune hired to put the team down once and for all. Semi-Friendly Persuasion is an odd episode in which Dr. Hewer from Buck Rogers plays a pacifist who turns the other cheek when they are run out of town by the local hoodlums. I don't know that the A-Team is the best place to explore pacifism. The season closes with a clip show, Curtain Call, in which Murdoch is shot and bleeding to death, but the team can't help as quickly as they might as Decker is breathing down their necks. This is just an excuse for all the team to remember the good times with Murdoch, but is more notable for the lengths the editors go to to avoid showing Amy. Season 3 saw Peppard's prediction for Tanya come true, but at least she got a proper send-off instead of disappearing in between episodes. In the two-hour The Bend in the River, Tanya hires the team to find her heretofore unmentioned fiancé, who has gone missing on an archaeological dig in the Amazon. Tanya stays behind at the end and is never seen again. Ratings remain steady in the third year, with the A-team still being a top ten hit for NBC, and sales all over the world were remarkable. The third season of any show is when the actors start being able to use their clout to demand more money and better billing, but the behind-the-scenes difficulties wouldn't really hit fever pitch until the fourth year. The notoriously prickly George Papard showed his tender side by raising money for a stuntman injured filming the show, but his relationship with Mr T started to sour when Papard started to feel his position as the star of the show was being threatened. Conversely, the show was in a bit of a rut, although it continued to pump out entertaining variations on a theme. Timber, Trouble on Wheels and Fire are essentially the same episode, with the A-Team helping out firefighters, an auto mechanic and loggers all threatened by criminal gangs. Skins gets political as the A-Team show just exactly what they think of elephant hunters who kill for ivory. This is another rare serious episode featuring an actual on-screen death. 
Showdown is particularly memorable, as the A-Team must help out a Wild West show being run out of business by an ersatz A-Team. Hannibal, Face and BA all take on their counterparts, but Murdoch is put out that he frequently gets no recognition for being a member of the team. Hannibal and Face must calm Murdoch's wounded ego in one of the highest-rated episodes of the show's original run. Hot Styles is notable for Burley having Mr. T in it, as Face, Hannibal and Murdoch must help a model, a returning Marky Post, from being snatched by mobsters. Sheriffs of Rivertown is good fun, as is Champ, where B.A. must return to the boxing ring after Face's investment in a B-grade boxer gets them all into trouble. Schultz and Benedict found themselves with a lot more to do this season, although Benedict gets the episode Breakout off when he literally phones in his two-scene appearance. Nevertheless, Breakout is another fun episode. Murdoch and B.A. are driving back to L.A. when they are carjacked by fools who clearly don't know what they are doing. Murdoch is also sent to stage in Bounty when he is kidnapped by a less than reputable family who want the reward money for the team and are using Murdoch as bait. Schultz's real-life wife, Wendy Fulton, guest stars as Murdoch's love interest. The final episode of the season, Incident at Crystal Lake, is one of the best, featuring the A-team going up against Jason Voorhees. I'm kidding. It's a great episode, though. The team are hiding out and trading after Hannibal thinks they've been getting sloppy, which led to them almost getting caught by Decker. Cue lots of scenes of unconvincing stunt doubles doing pull-ups and tuck and rolls. The vacation is spoiled when thieves roll up and take the nearby cabin ranger and his daughter hostage. Full of funny moments and lines and not afraid to send itself up, this is a great way to close out the season. The cast all returned for a fourth season, with the show still a smash, and were rewarded with another two-hour episode, Judgment Day. However, behind-the-scenes turmoil would reach fever pitch and nearly see one of the cast fired, and this changed the tone of the season. Judgment Day not only features the Bell 222 chopper, best known for playing Erwolf, but largely takes place on a cruise ship. This led to problems when Mr. T stormed off the set halfway through filming, necessitating a quick rewrite. According to reports, T and his entourage took offence when a group of crew members were sitting eating lunch at his favourite table, and he asked Cannell to fire them for their gall. Cannell and Peppard thought this was ridiculous, so T stropped off and Cannell, so incensed by T's unprofessionalism, fired him from the show. The episode was rewritten to leave B.A. in his cabin, and note, if you watch it, how little B.A. appears in the ocean line of footage, leaving Peppard, Benedict and Schultz to pick up the slack. After filming was completed, cooler heads prevailed and T was asked back, but the damage between he and Peppard was done. T and Peppard never spoke directly to each other again for the run of the show. Both Benedict and Schultz have spoken at conventions about how Peppard would only address T through an intermediary, normally Benedict or Schultz. This has a curious effect on the series. Benedict finds himself paired up with Peppard a lot more in season 4, whilst Schultz works with T when T can be bothered to show up. Close inspection of these fourth season episodes reveal T to be a body double an awful lot of the time, and this body double is quite easy to spot. In addition to being notably shorter and smaller than T, he also seems to sport a bald cap with a mohawk on it. Notice as well the amount of times Peppard and T may be in the same scene, but aren't actually filmed together. Numerous episodes, therefore, are centred around Murdoch and Face, such as the excellent Wheel of Fortune, where Face gets Murdoch on the famous game show where he wins big, and The Doctor is Out, where Murdoch hires the team to find his kidnapped psychiatrist, played by Oscar Goldman himself, Richard Anderson. This leads to Schultz demanding and receiving an AND credit, leaving Benedict as the only actor to be credited by name only in the opening titles. When T does feature heavily, it's episodes about B.A. and where he can have scenes with actors other than Peppard. 
Lise, with an option to die, has B.A.'s mother threatened by men who want her out of her tenement building. And the Duke of Whispering Pines sees B.A.'s high school girlfriend ask him to help her when her husband and B.A.'s high school football rival is kidnapped. Hulk Hogan shows up for two episodes, Body Slam and The Trouble with Harry, and shows himself to be one of the few actors alive who can make Mr. T look like Alec Guinness. I have often wondered how good actors feel having to work with someone as inept at the job as Hogan, and his episodes are true examples of so bad they're good. However, compared to Boy George, Hogan is a master thespian, as proven in Cowboy George. The impetus for the most bizarre team-up in television history has faced Book Boy George and Culture Cub for a gig at a country and western evening, mistaking him for notable country and western singer Cowboy George. Absolutely dreadful in every way. But is there anything more 80s than Boy George appearing on the A-team? Elsewhere, season four is much campier and funnier than the previous years, even if the previous years couldn't be called gritty drama. More focus is placed on Hannibal's acting career, giving us Where is the Monster When You Need Him Most, where the A-team attends the premiere of Hannibal's new monster movie, Gatorella, but instead end up fighting international criminals. Hannibal then goes for a job on the kids' show Uncle Buckle Up, playing a friendly burr. But this goes tits up when the team discovers someone is using Uncle Buckle Up merchandise to smuggle heroin. Both these episodes are very funny, with Buckle Up especially featuring some pointy dialogue about working in TV. Rough the bear. This is going to be it, Face. This is going to be the part that takes off. But Hannibal, a bear? And on TV, TV's not for you. You're a powerhouse. You need 28 feet of canvas to explode out of. You know, you'll get lost in the little yeah, screen. Now, I've been thinking about that, Face. But you know, television is an intimate medium. And I'm an intimate kind of a guy. Like Rambo's an intimate kind of guy. What you have to do is, you have to get to the bear in this undisturbed state of mind. I see. What do you think? I think you've lost your mind. And uh, what's so important about this job that you schlep all of us down to the zoo? You seem awfully uptight about this. I mean, you know, you've lost other jobs to other actors. You're just not writing my kind of picture anymore. Yeah, romance and comedy, you know. Who needs it? Yeah, but you know, that uh, that shark at Universal, he worked for years. Yeah, but Hannibal, this is a kid's show. This bear sings and dances. You know, you could look foolish. Clint Eastwood and Lee Marvin did Paint Your Wagon. They danced and they sang. Now, did they look foolish? Indescribably so. But they went on to bigger things. Not singing. And definitely not dancing. Well, it was a gap in their technique. A gap I do not intend to have. And uh, what do you know about the technique involved in doing a children's show? Well, that's why I called Murdoch. As soon as he gets here, we head to the studio. Now, face. What?
Members Only is the single silliest episode of the season, as Face tries to get a membership at an exclusive country club, only to have Hannibal ruin it for him when he discovers it's been used as cover for a counterfeit ring. An absolute riot, Members Only is as daft as it is fun. Beneath the surface sees Face attend an orphanage reunion, an incredibly dumb thing to do, which Hannibal delights in pointing out to him when General Fulbright shows up to arrest him. Notably racier than other episodes, Face shags an old flame in the back of a limo, despite knowing she's a plant from Fulbright, only to pay her the ultimate diss by stating that it just really wasn't worth the wait. There goes The Neighbourhood is hysterical. Ostensibly the Rockstar in Trouble episode, the team try to protect the beauteous damsel by renting a house in the suburbs. Sadly, a noted drug dealer has done the same, and the team become neighbourhood watch members to clean up the district. Never has the A-team been so outrageously silly. We see the team arguing over who gets to use the bathroom first. They lounge around in their robes and slippers reading the newspaper and eating breakfast, and they answer an incredibly crude gay joke that would not pass muster today with the ruse that they are four divorcees who are simply saving money by living together. All of this madness works remarkably well, and the four actors all seem to be having fun in this episode. Even T shows up for a lot of it, although he's notably absent in the opening scenes. The fourth season closes with the sound of thunder, a complete tonal shift not only from the rest of the season, but the rest of the series. The team are hired by Fulbright to rescue some POWs in Nar, one of whom can apparently clear the team's name. However, it's all a lie, and Fulbright really needs them to rescue his heretofore unknown Vietnamese daughter, played by Tia Carrier. Sombre, oft times depressing, this episode really tackles the team's conflicting feelings about the Vietnam War, with minimal wisecracks and silliness. Like the first season finale, this episode shows what a serious A-team could have been. The cast rise to the challenge of making a serious drama, and by the time Fulbright dies rescuing his daughter, you actually feel sorry for the guy and wish he'd made it out alive. The team take Carrier back to the States, where it seems she'll join them, and they will help her as a favour to Fulbright, who died appreciating the team and what they did for him. But sadly, we never see her again. Ratings had dropped precipitously in this fourth year, with the show falling out of the top 20 for the first time since its debut, and many thought this was the writing on the wall, or, at the very least, the writing on the t-shirt. Throughout the series, Murdoch wears a number of colourfully monikered t-shirts, and this particular episode has one that reads, All good things must come to an end. Had this been the conclusion, it would have been an unusual way for the show to go out, especially after the high camp of the season as a whole, but Cannell's salesmanship bought the show a reprieve. When it returned for its fifth season, it would be with an all-new credit sequence and a new premise. This was as radical an overhaul of the opening titles as had been seen. This normally bodes ill for a show, and a fair few times can signal a show on its last legs. Not only were the clips used to sell the audience now completely different, using scenes from the three-part opening episode Dishpan Man, Trial by Fire and Firing Line, but also dropped is the opening saga cell, informing us of the team and its purpose. In its place, a staccato and synthesised drumbeat depicting the A-team in a courtroom and standing trial before the gunshots burst forth to reveal the title logo and the team breaking out of court. The familiar theme then kicks in, but with more 80 synth feel and now in stereo. Clips from the show accompany the actors' credits. George Pepard, Dirk Benedict and Dwight Schultz are all present and accounted for. But then, in a total surprise, there is a new bridge added and a new character, Eddie Valaise as Frankie Santana, before Mr T hurls a table over and dons a fedora for his credit. But another surprise follows, as former man from Uncle Robert Vaughan pops up as Hunt Stockwell. 
The sequence ends with the requisite shots of helicopters exploding and cars turning over, but the impression is akin to having had one's face slapped with a wet fish. What the hell? Here's the audio. See what you think of it. revamp is handled well over the first three episodes of the season, given the three different titles I've already mentioned, all grouped together under the umbrella title The Court Martial Parts 1 through 3. Hannibal Smith is kidnapped by General Stockwell, who blackmails the A-Team into rescuing a group of hostages, one of which, Colonel Curtis, can prove the team not guilty of the crime they are on the run for. Predictably, it all goes south, and the team are captured and tried for robbing the bank in Hanoi. This morphs into the team being accused of being the ones that killed Colonel Morrison. Hannibal, Face and B.A. are found guilty and sentenced for execution. Murdoch and new team member, special effects man Frankie Santana, try to free the team and to do this, they coerce General Stockwell into helping. The team is rescued, but in exchange for his aid, Stockwell now wants the A-team to work for him, performing off-book black ops, and in return, after a certain specified number of missions, he will obtain a pardon for all of them. Face asks if these will be suicide missions, and Stockwell replies, not all of them. Basically, this format change turns the A-Team into a hybrid of 70s Western alias Smith and & Jones and 60s spy drama Mission Impossible. Howling Mad Murdoch is also declared sane and released from the Veterans Hospital, another change to the central premise of the show. With Murdoch not an official team member, he's not part of Stockwell's offer, and a lot of humour was derived from Murdoch having to find a job. The fifth season of the A-Team, therefore, feels like an entirely different show, and opinion varies on whether this is a bad thing. These three episodes are notable for featuring the regular mix of humour and action, but aren't quite as formulaic as normal, and do a pretty good job of wrapping up the whole wanted-for-a-crime-they-didn't-commit thing. With some editing, this could easily be the series finale. It was also nice to see all the team members working together again, and Mr T seems more invested and engaged than in any of the fourth season. Personally, I think the fifth season has a number of good episodes, but it varied wildly in tone. Robert Vaughan was an old friend of Peppard's and was brought in not only to create more interesting story ideas, but also possibly appease Peppard, who was still not playing well with others, particularly Mr T. 
As before, T's screen time is significantly reduced, with more episodes centred on Murdoch and Face, even though new team member Frankie Santana never really amounts to much. Stockwell moves the team to a rather nice mansion in Virginia, where they will reside in between missions. After the three-part opener, quarterback sneak is about American football, and as such, held little interest for me. The Say Uncle Affair is a glorious episode for fans of 60s spy series The Man From Uncle. Structured and edited as if it were an old episode of that series, Vaughn is reunited with his old uncle co-star David McCallum, who here is playing Russian spy Ivan Tregore, who was an old partner of Stockwell's before he turned adversary. Squint a little, and it's not hard to imagine these being older versions of Vaughan and McCallum's uncle characters, Napoleon Solo and Ilya Kuryakin. Alive at Five sees Face trying to desert due to his belief that Stockwell will never actually grant them their pardons. Needless to say, he keeps getting pulled back in. Family Reunion is another Face-centric episode, and another relatively serious one, where Face finds out Murdoch knows who might be his real father. Murdoch takes the central role in The Crystal Skull and The Spy Who Mugged Me. In the former, Murdoch recovers an ancient artefact that sees him worshipped as a god, much to BA's dismay, and the latter is a wonderful spoof of James Bond, with Murdoch taking on the role of Logan Ross to stop a professional assassin. The real final episode of the show, The Grey Team, featured the team helping out some OAPs who are as feisty as cliché would expect. The cancellation of the show, though, wasn't totally unexpected. In the penultimate episode, Without Reservations, Murdoch can be seen wearing a t-shirt that reads Almost Finny, and in The Grey Team, he's wearing one that reads Finny. The revamp didn't really reignite any interest, and the series was brought to an end. To give the show some closure, there are some hastily added lines of dialogue to the final episode, to explain that the pardon is coming through earlier than expected, and that the team will just simply go back to helping people. Presumably so the next episode can go back to the beginning, and the whole thing can run through again in lucrative syndication. The A-Team was cancelled in late 1986, with the final episode, without reservations, actually the penultimate show, as I mentioned earlier, which was skipped over for some reason, erring in the summer of 1987. Everyone went on to other projects. Over the years, though, something weird happened with the A-Team. Despite critical derision, constant reruns have seen the series become ever popular, perhaps because it is just pure escapism. Pepard didn't live to see his comeback become his most memorable role, passing away in 1994, aged 65. Dwight Schultz, Dirk Benedict and Mr T all went back to being jobbing actors, never gaining that starring role that would have given them the career longevity they deserved. But all three men get along with each other, with Benedict claiming T is one of the funniest guys he's ever worked with, and both Schultz and Benedict make regular convention appearances, often together. Schultz gained greater notoriety as Lieutenant Barclay in Star Trek The Next Generation. The A-Team was a blip on Robert Vaughan's resume. He went back to being ineffably cool in roles on TV and film, experiencing a career resurgence of his own when he landed the role of ageing conman Albert Stroller in the BBC comedy drama Hustle, and even cropping up in Coronation Street. He died in 2016, aged 83, leaving behind him a career of great performances. I don't recall seeing Melinda Coolier in anything again other than an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation or Eddie Velez, who played Santana, although both the actors have reasonably lengthy resumes on IMDb. The A-Team continues to live on. 
As part of the movie's fascination with rebooting old TV series, in the early 2000s, Joe Carnahan directed an action-packed do-over of the series starring Liam Neeson as Hannibal, Bradley Cooper as Face, Shalto Copley as Murdoch, and Rampage Jackson as B.A. Baracus. Against all odds, this worked, and was easily the most successful of this slew of movies at the time, although it was sadly not popular enough to gain a sequel. As with most of these films, it was more concerned with being an origin movie, showing the team robbing the bank but now being veterans of the Gulf rather than Vietnam. Its strength came from the fact that the characters were exactly the same as the TV show, even though I personally feel George Clooney would have been a better Hannibal than Liam Neeson. Its most notable weakness came from the fact that they had access to the most memorable theme in TV history and barely used it. Still, it's a fun, over-the-top romp and highly enjoyable. Another remake is currently mooted, but I don't know that we live in a time where the A-Team could be made anymore. It was unabashedly absurd, insane entertainment, not really offering anything but entertainment. There's something about it that I think would be lost if it was to be made more realistic or gritty. Better, I think, to imagine that they're still out there, hiring themselves out to whoever can find them, forever, on the jazz. <laughs> What's it say? Well, it says, I love it when a plan comes together. Magnus here. At Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But mostly it's comics. And starting in February 2018, I'm launching a mega series that's all about Batman comics. And right now, you're probably saying, but Magnus, but Magnus, does this have anything to do with that new Batman movie that may or may not be coming soon? Why, yes. Yes, it does. I plan to talk about a crapload of Batman comics, and I want you riding along in the Batmobile with me. This is The Caped Crusades, a 24-part mega-series all about Batman comics that have meant a lot to me for a lot of years now. And as I work through all of that, I'll also talk about what I personally consider to be Batman's series finale. All that and more is part of The Caped Crusades, a 24-part Trennis Magnus Punches Reality mega-series. Be there in February 2018. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality can be found at twotruefreaks.com as well as iTunes. And we're back after that commercial break with today's email section. And the email sack's looking a tad dry and shriveled today. There's only one email in the sack. 
Uh, it's from Chris Franklin. Hello, Andy. I didn't realise we were at the Hulk's 40th anniversary. Man, do I feel old. <laughs> Tell me about it, dude. I haven't seen Homecoming in a long time. I don't think it's on the best of DVD set I have. I think Hulk was on Netflix here. If it is, I know what I'm watching tonight. Man from Atlantis was one of those series I just missed. It was slightly before my time of being fully aware of such shows, I suppose. I didn't even know it existed until the Sci-Fi Channel reran it in the early 90s. Man, I miss the original Sci-Fi Channel. Back when they could actually spell and showed old-time genre shows. Sigh, again. Old. Great shows always, Chris. Yeah, Sci-Fi Channel used to be good, didn't it? I mean, I'm not saying it's not good now. You know, The Expanse is a great show, although I'd rather watch that on Netflix. The Librarians is fun. That's on Sci-Fi, or it is over here. I don't know where it is in America. So there's still some interesting stuff on the Sci-Fi Channel. But you kind of think that the Sci-Fi Channel should be where Star Trek is and... You know, stuff like Space 1999 and UFO and War of the Worlds. And now it's just all over the place. War of the Worlds was on the Horror Channel, which I can kind of buy. But the Horror Channel now has a sci-fi strand where it shows Star Trek. And you're like, shouldn't this be on sci-fi? I mean, I don't mind that Star Trek's on horror. It's just nice that it's that it's around to be viewed by people. But there is a, an awful lot of old stuff Jerry Anderson stuff in particular, like Seven, the adaptation of the Day of the Triffids, all of that stuff that you'd think would have a home on sci-fi. And sci-fi mostly nowadays just seems to make those really god-awful TV movies like the Sharknado shit and all of that stuff instead of actually, you know, showing some good science fiction. But I can't imagine that the sci-fi channel's budget's terribly large for stuff like that, but, you know, whatever. Anyway, thank you for emailing in, Chris. The, the Incredible Hulk episode is always a joy. I do love me a little bit of Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno. That about wraps it up for this one. I hope you enjoyed it, as usual. The show is a, a T2-2, is an R2-D2 production, is a Two True Freaks production, and a proud member of that, the network. If you want to keep the lights on, leave a light on for me. Then uh, pop on over there, and when you buy your crap from Amazon, especially if it's embarrassing crap, feel free to use the link that uh, helps support all of our great content. And all of it is great, you know. Not some of it, all of it. Uh, thank you for joining me for this particular episode. I don't know what's coming next, as ever. Lap of the gods. Um, but I hope you enjoyed this one. And indeed, I hope you've enjoyed the show this year in 2017. Happy New Year, everybody, and let's hope for more in 2018. You take care.